0: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at Radio
2: Team at Beyond Zero Emissions org. Good afternoon, or should I say good evening, with the uh, the early fall of darkness upon Melbourne and Victoria now. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and we have another great show for you tonight thanks to Vivian who gets out and records all sorts of events for your listening pleasure. Uh, We're bringing you tonight an event from the Sustainable Living Festival which was uh, held and run on the 13th of February. It was called Economic Growth to Save the Planet, Rethinking Good Growth and the Economy It was brought to the Sustainable Living Festival by an organisation called the Scope, which is a not-for-profit uh, it, it provides unique education programs public forums and consultancy service, services to address the root causes of sustainability challenge and opportunities Anthony James from the Scope is the MC for this event and he brings three excellent speakers, Jan Owen, Ian Dunlop and Miriam Lyons. I'll let him introduce you because he gives a thorough introduction at the beginning of each speaker and we do conclude this presentation with some of the Q&A which was held at the end. Uh, But I will just leave this introduction with the blurb which came from the website which said, It has been said that if you believe exponential growth can go on in a finite world, you're either mad or an economist. I hope you enjoy this presentation.
3: Now, my name is Anthony James. I'm from the Understanderscope, the Executive Director. I'm also the host of today's conversation. The Understanderscope is a not-for-profit organisation founded by Australia's inaugural Environmental Educator of the Year, the late Professor Frank Fisher. The last 12 months has been telling Indeed, for the increase in debate, like we were here a couple of years ago talking about economic growth, but what hadn't happened was a seeming um, groundswell and breakthroughs of sorts, where mainstream society is talking about growth as we know it not coming back. So the dialogue is opening, and then you have other avenues of of, um, of thought talking about not only that, but our cultural stories that underpin the the um, assumptions that growth is good and necessary. Of course, the, the, um, the, the immediate returns when you talk about this stuff is what do you do about jobs? And indeed, what do you do about our understanding of work, paying off debts? And indeed, what do you do with the debts we can't pay off? There's been a $57 trillion increase in global debt since the financial crisis. It is almost universally recognised as not being able to be dealt with in the conventional way. So what do we do? Particularly if growth, as we know it, is not going to continue. The specific question for the session is, is this the end of economic growth? And we're putting to the panel, if your answer is yes, then how do we change the economic model without collapse? And if your answer is no, then how do we keep the, the growth model going without collapse? She's currently senior campaigner for GetUp, a regular media, media commentator on Q&A and the drum, and her website features the byline tugging at the threads of impossible problems. Miriam Lyons.
4: Thanks so much, Anthony. So some people are born activists, some people become activists, others have activism thrust upon them. I think I was probably the first one. Um, I, I started writing like letters to politicians when I was about five because my parents said if I saw something on the television that made me upset or angry, then I should write a letter about it because every letter was like worth a hundred because for every letter they received, they'd know that a hundred other people thought the same way but hadn't bothered to write a letter. So I was like, all right, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know that for me kind of sums up a sort of lifeline, lifelong obsession um, both with the environment and with people and the total inseparability of uh, environmental sustainability and justice um, and I think that that is something that I really have always running through my mind when I think about this debate because it quite often gets framed as a debate between the green stuff and the job stuff um, and that is a very unhealthy and unnecessary way of entering into a conversation like this and it ends up like throwing up quite a long lot of false dichotomies so when I saw the the title that was kind of officially given for this event in the program, um, Will Growth Save the Planet? Immediately it brings up a lot of questions for me. It had a question mark, my brain instantly fills with more question marks so what growth was that again? Growth of what? Growth for who? As a bit of an armchair economist, I want to just talk about the kind of information we're drawing on when we have these conversations. So climate scientists have a much stronger track record of making uh, justifiable, verifiable, reliable predictions than macroeconomists do. The climate is a complex and it's a difficult system to model. At its heart, it's basically you know just chemistry, physics, biology—easy, right? Um, you know, surely we don't need a whole bunch of climate scientists at CSIRO to sort that thing out. No, wait—you um, know. So it's 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 actually quite a hard system to model, but it has shown a track record of actually getting to grips with the fundamental nature of the system. Economists have to take that system, which is not independent of our economic system, even though we often like to pretend that it is um and then add on individual psychology group psychology um it, it basically makes economists worse at long-term prediction than the weather guy right so this is this is the scenario that we're entering into we the economists still kind of are have very very deep long uh, wordy arguments in a whole bunch of journals about what exactly growth comes from in other words we really do not know whether fixing climate change will reduce or increase growth. We don't know. We do know that failing to fix climate change will hurt us. So let's go into some of those those question marks that were floating around in my brain. What growth was that again? So there's a whole bunch of really um really very good, very detailed, very useful reports that go into you know quite a lot of effort to um demonstrate that actually we can deal with climate change you know, with really strong, rapid action, um, go all out. And the consequence for economic growth is basically that we would have to wait an extra six months for the size of GDP to double, right? Can I can wait an extra six months. One key assumption in these things, and it's it's always interesting because the the way the media reports on on big investigations like that is, you know, that it will reduce GDP by this much to take climate action, you know. There will be this many billion dollars that it will cost to take climate action. One of the key assumptions is that the reference case that is being pointed to there is in fact real. The assumed background level of growth that they're comparing this strong climate action scenario to is a background level of growth that we can expect to continue, that the economy would otherwise just continue barreling along as it has in the past. Now, that is a very big if, right? Most industrialised economies have been stagnant for quite a while in different ways. A bunch are still in recession. A bunch would have been in recession for quite some time without the contribution of population growth, without continually re-inflated housing bubbles, Also, without liquidating assets. Now... If you liquidate an asset, that really does not deserve to be called growth. If I'm a national economy and I sell my minerals, the fact that the GDP looks much bigger that year does not tell me very much about the underlying growth rate. There's a phrase that I really like. When the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. And Australia has just spent a long, hot summer swimming in a mining boom without our board shorts on. In that context, let's look at what the climate challenge means. There is a serious mismatch between CO2 emissions targets currently proposed by countries across the world and the reductions that are needed to avoid catastrophic climate change. I think that the yawning gap between climate science and climate policy is going to close sooner or later. If that happens, it is going to spark a massive and unprecedented investment in fixing the problem. Um, There's a report, it's a little old now, but I think it's still valid, by the World Wildlife Foundation, which showed that basically the low carbon and carbon negative industries would need to be growing at around 25% to 30% a year if we were to have a reasonable chance of avoiding climate change tipping points. So what does that mean? Growth won't save the planet. But it is entirely possible that saving the planet will save growth. So the next question, growth of what? Gross domestic product as a measure. It was not intended as a measure of progress. But even as we currently measure growth, right? you, you take you know, the usual metric for economic growth, right? GDP. It's consumption plus investment plus government expenditure plus exports minus imports, right? substantial effort to tackle tri- climate change has to involve a huge amount of investment in new power systems, in remediating the effects of already damaged ecosystems, potentially including, t- like, carbon drawdown through biochar, natural systems, new transport infrastructure, modifying buildings, decommissioning old plant. Some of that will come from government investment. Some of it will come from the private sector. Basically, there'll be a rise in government expenditure, R&D, retraining. There is a whole bunch of stuff in there where which is a type of growth which is not just necessarily destructive to the planet. If we set absolute limits on carbon pollution, if we make our goal to actually live within planetary boundaries, to be honest, if we then bring down inequality, um, if we you know have a strong focus on how to maximise employment in that economy, good jobs, if we take like the increase in well-being per unit of material consumption as a much better measure of progress, which is something the New Economics Foundation has been working on with its Happy Planet Index, and I recommend looking that up. It's a reasonably good substitute for GDP. If we do all of that, I honestly do not give a toss as to whether GDP, as we currently measure it, goes up or down. Let's do the stuff that the economy is for, make that our priority, and let everything sort itself out.
0: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
4: Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves.
1: Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle.
4: Animales.
0: News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised
3: by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra.
2: That last speaker was Miriam Lyons, speaking at the Sustainable Living Festival presentation of the talk of Economic Growth to Save the Planet... Question mark. Next up is Anthony James introducing the next speaker, Ian Dunlop.
3: Ian is a Cambridge educated in engineer with a particular interest in the interaction of corporate governance, corporate responsibility, and sustainability. He's formerly an international oil, gas, and coal industry executive, chairman of the Australian Coal Association, and CEO of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He's also a director of Australia 21 and a member of the Club of Rome which is getting increasingly favourable attention these days as their famous Limits to Growth thesis has been found to be tracking more closely to reality than had been generally accepted.
1: Okay, Anthony, thank you very much and uh, thanks for the invitation to join you. My journey on on these issues began a long time ago. Um, I joined the oil industry way back in the 1950s, the late 50s. One of the issues that we realised at um, that point in time was that we had incredibly sophisticated computer models that could forecast the price of oil to three places of decimal 30 years out. We didn't have the slightest idea what was going to happen tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. And people decided that was actually a bit of a problem. So we came up with a thing called scenario planning, which is basically nothing more than storytelling. But if you actually look at the world and you think about the big issues, what might happen? I mean, if population was going to keep growing exponentially as it looked at that point in time, and it had been doing that since the Second World War, and we keep on consuming, and you add in the people in China and India and all the other countries in the developing world, where are you going to end up? Scenarios were sort of designed to look at that sort of a picture, and um, way back in the, by then it was the mid-60s, Things like climate change uh, were actually on the agenda then, not in the sense of being issues which are an immediate problem, but something which sooner or later was going to have to be addressed, Uh, because the science is not new. I mean, the science of climate change has been around since the 1800s. What's become clearer, I think, in the, 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 the subsequent years is that the science has got reinforced, the evidence has become clearer and clearer, And there is no question that this stuff is happening. I got involved in this very early in my career for my sins and I've always retained an interest in it, which um, gradually, as time has gone by, it's become clearer that we really had to move to do something. And that's been my particular interest for the last uh, 20-odd years, I suppose, is to try and get the corporate world in particular Uh, and politicians to understand better what the science is really telling us, as well as some of the fundamental energy implications that are behind it. Um, So what I'd like to do is just build on Miriam's comments, but particularly a little bit on the energy front. For those of you of uh, more mature years, you may remember that the Club of Rome put out a little book called The Limits to Growth in 1972, which is basically an Italian industrialist and a Scottish scientist getting concerned about the implications of exponential growth of both population and consumption. So, well, if this continues, well, what happens? I mean, how do we actually manage this problem? So they formed a little club, which became the Club of Rome. They developed this book, which was based on the first time anybody had ever used a computer model to actually assess the implications of those two parameters. Now when it came out, it was greeted with great enthusiasm for about five years. People really thought this was a big step forward in looking at these things. After about five or six years, the implications of it started to sink in to what was then becoming the beginnings of the neoclassical economic model where people suddenly said, well, if this is actually true, it means actually that we're going to have a problem a bit further down the line and all this growth stuff may not be possible any longer. And so we then ended up in 20 or 30 years of the thing being rubbished left, right and centre by the predecessors of the Morris Newmans of this world and it fell into disrepute for quite some time. Now... The work has kept going, the club is still in existence, but the problems, um, as it happens, the the core picture they painted, and it was basically not a prediction, it was a set of scenarios, the core prediction, uh, sorry, the core scenario is actually almost exactly what's happened in the last 40 years. Uh, Graham Turner here in the Melbourne University has done a lot of work on that. And we've seen continual growth um, for the last 40 odd years, particularly since World War II. The problem is that round about now, things start falling apart. And I'd suggest to you that what we've seen since the year 2000 is in fact the beginnings of a fundamental change in the way the global system is going to operate. Now the question we were asked is, is economic growth gonna continue? I would answer that if you're talking about conventional growth in the sense of uh, continual increase in monetary value by pushing more and more resources and uh, energy and so on through the system in the way that GDP assesses it, as Miriam's touched on, then we're at the end of that. I mean, that is over. On the other hand, from here on, there's going to be growth differentially in different areas. We've got to now move away from a fossil fuel system into completely different sorts of technology and completely different ways of living, to be quite frank. And the reason for that is that we're in a pincer movement at the moment between particularly energy and climate change. There are other critical issues. Water and food, it's all part of the same problem. And financial instability... Uh, essentially social fragmentation, which you now see happening in the Middle East, which is the beginnings of a much bigger global migration problem because of these problem, these, these issues I've, I've talked about. Now, the only reason we have seven million billion people on, on the planet today is because of fossil fuels. So I'm not knocking fossil fuels in terms of what they've done in developing our world thus far. Without them, it would never have happened. You can have too much of a good thing, and we've now got to the point where the implications of using them just mean unless we fundamentally change much more quickly than anybody is currently talking about, then we actually don't have a future. On the other hand, if we are prepared to come to grips with that, then we have a better future than we have actually had so far, because if you look at other alternatives to Uh, GDP, for example, as a measure of economic activity and progress, things like a genuine progress indicator, we have not progressed as humanity since the 1970s. The critical issues at the moment uh, are really the question of energy and oil supply What's happening is that the peak oil, which is not that we're running out of oil, but it's the point at which oil supply reaches the stage where, because of geological constraints and the fact that we're on a finite planet with a finite number of oil reservoirs, you cannot keep increasing the supply above the level we've now hit. Now, we um, essentially reached the peak of conventional oil, which is just uh, in... Uh, conventional reservoirs and so on, in uh, 2005, 2006. We've now got more oil coming through from unconventional supplies, but basically they're uneconomic. And they, when you start um, pushing the price of oil to the level, say, $100 a barrel we saw in 2008 and so on, the economy collapses into recession. So the price has dropped. We now have an oversupply. We have a lot of banks who have spent a lot of money supporting uneconomic oil development who are now getting quite exposed, so we have a major financial problem. And at the same time, the climate issue is much more acute than anybody has admitted officially. We have to move to drop our emissions far faster than this government is talking about, the previous government and any other government in this country has ever discussed, and indeed the international negotiators in Paris. So growth in the way we've seen it cannot continue. We have all sorts of solutions have been mooted about uh, alternatives we could put in place, the circular economy and, and, and so on, which we can talk a bit further about. But the fact is that they all have to be predicated on the fact we've now got to get back to a world that does not emit carbon. We've got to do it much faster than we have been led to believe. And it's going to require not just a question of new technologies and incrementally changing the business as usual path, but a fundamental change to lifestyles because the developed world has to now start using far less energy than it has done before proportionally, whilst you've got the Chinas and the Indias of this world continuing to grow. So that's um, probably enough for now, but I mean we have solutions to this problem but it's going to be a very different world from what we've been, become accustomed to and one which I would argue is going to be actually a far better world for the vast numbers of the world's uh, population.
2: You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions and we're still at the Sustainable Living Festival presentation. The last speaker was Ian Dunlop and Anthony James is uh, the next you will person you will hear introducing Jan Owens.
3: Jan Owen is CEO of the Foundation for Young Australians, the inaugural AFR Westpac Woman of Influence 2012, against a heck of a field, I might add, so that's quite the accolade. And back in 2000, she was awarded membership of the Order of Australia for services to children and young people. Jan is also the author of Every Childhood Lasts a Lifetime, going back 20 years now, and The Future Chases, going back just a year or so.
0: Um, my, uh, I guess my story starts actually as um, also very young. My parents helped set up Lifeline in Australia and um, I, as a very, very young child... Uh, In those days, there was no support system. There wasn't anything like the social sector that there is now. And so, when you took a call at Lifeline, you put the phone down, you got in your car, and you drove to the incident or the problem that was being um, that you'd been called about. So I was, um, we were too young to be left at home. So me and my brothers and sisters would often be in the back of the car as we watched our parents literally walk into homes where. Where there were, you know, really serious domestic disputes going on and bring out the mother and the children who would come and stay at our place for a kind of a time until they got back on their feet. I watched my father at the age of seven talk somebody down from jumping off a bridge, the Story Bridge in Brisbane. So that had a huge impact on me, but the impact was not actually the trauma, and maybe because I was very young, the impact on me was the ability for people to get up on their feet again and to readjust their lives and their adaptability and their resilience with the support of people who just kind of stepped in and were there for them. And that had, as I said, a profound effect on me and I spent the rest of my life working with children and young people in all kinds of different contexts. And to Miriam and Ian's points, um, my view is that we're in it. It's not coming and it's not, you know, something that we need to work out. We're actually in it and we're living it now. And I, we know that actually the people who are... At a point in time, the last to be enter um, the economy or the marketplace are often the first that are actually hit. And so in this country alone, and just in Australia alone, and I don't need to tell you much about what you see in the papers about overseas, um, in Spain and in um, many parts of Europe, Italy, 50% youth unemployment. Um, an entire generation that's been called a lost generation if we don't get people into work. But in Australia... You know, the country that we are, with the wealth and the unprecedented growth that we've had, we have 14, 15% youth unemployment. In some parts, 30%. And then we've got on top of all of that, um, 25%. Underemployment. So that means, you know, those incredible baristas at your local cafe that have got two degrees and can make amazing art on your coffee, um, actually we're missing out on about $56 billion a year of productivity by having people with degrees and with the capacity to work who can't work. So that's a social issue, but it's also... An economic issue. And our view is that we um, are very concerned about these issues being seen as social and that we need a welfare response when in fact what we need is we need an economic response. We don't need um, a whole new welfare system to look after unemployed young people for instance. What we need is a whole new investment um, about how we're going to work together in Australia to drive a new economy and how young people are going to be in front of that and at the front of it because actually they're the most skilled, the most educated and the most connected than they've ever been in any generation before. It's a fantastic thing. You want your kids to be smarter than you and they actually are. Um, But what they're not is they're not getting the opportunity that their parents at the same age had around some of the things that we have come to believe. And they're just beliefs, but are the things that we've come to believe are the transitions through youth to adulthood. And if those transitions are going to change... If young people at the age of 24 are not going to own a home and that bit of dirt that is the thing that we hold as our only asset till we die in Australia, it's the great level playing field, it's that, you know, that that square is the thing that we've held on to as the egalitarian part of Australia. We all get the right to own our own home. If we're not going to have a job for 37 years, and by the way, I talk to 15 year olds all the time and I say, would you like a job for 37 years with a gold pen at the end? Or would you like an array of jobs where you might be an entrepreneur, you might work with other people, you might work for other people, you're probably gonna have 17 jobs across five different industries, and some time when you're not working, which one would you like? To a person, they go to this very complex, actually, but also very engaging and interesting option. Nobody's putting their hand up to say, I want the pen in the 37 years anymore. So there is young people's hearts and minds and the generation that are in this can get there. But the gap, and I think the missing piece, which is why conversations like this are so important, is really good information, really good information. An education system that is agile and adaptable and not actually fit for an industrial time of our lives. Um, and an opportunity for young people to be put in the driver's seat. And one of the things that I get the, the gift of seeing every day is young people actually innovating into these ideas. 20, 22-year-olds, 24-year-olds, 16-year-olds. We had our youngest ever entrepreneur at FyA last year, a guy called Taj Pajari, who invented um, a laptop or a a tablet that you have to put together yourself. So you have to build it yourself. And he did that because he'd read research that in Australia, our population... awesome at using tech. We are early adopters. We can swipe and swipe like nobody's business. But what we can't do is break, build, make tech. And so he created a tablet at the age of 15 that he could give to young people where they had to build it themselves and then program it and then use it. A simple idea from a 15-year-old. And then because he is so representative of his generation, he said, I don't want to do this for the money. I want to do this to make sure that kids all over the world get access to this tool and this tablet and to play with it, make it, build it, break it. Um, and so that impact and a social benefit, a human benefit, is front and centre in almost every single one of this next generation of tech, smart tech connected young people a social benefit rather than a personal financial return is core to what they're talking about and the things they're doing that's why I am stupidly, ridiculously relentlessly optimistic about them but what I want to make sure happens is that in the conversation that they get in the driver's seat and they get to try things and do things differently because remember all we've done to date is make it up as we went along every generation has miagged it even when in the face of incredible data people were scenario planning which is making up stories so why wouldn't we let the next generation get in and have a go and give them the information give them the tools and see what you know the real the real opportunities for thinking differently There are many new conversations about indexes and I've been involved with the Australian National Development Index um, conversation in Australia, uh, out of Melbourne University and a whole heap of universities. Of course, we must have many, many, many more measures for what we understand growth to be. But what I understand growth to be is that there are three currencies that drive our lives. There are the currencies of money, power and community or love. And those things, whenever... Whenever they are out of sync, whenever that one is weighted more than the other, we always end up in a really, really difficult place. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm for getting moving. We're in it. Let's go hard at it and um, create the sort of opportunities and the sort of place that we think that we want to be part of and live
3: in. Thank you. Could I open up whatever took you of that to start the conversation?
4: One of the things that um, stuck with me as you were speaking, Jan, is that I have met somebody who wants the job for life with a gold watch at the end, and it is somebody who has been working a series of badly paid, insecure labour hire jobs, Um, and he's not, like, dreaming about portfolio careers or his next start-up, and... People like him, people who are at the end of long careers that might be working in a coal-fired power plant in Hazelwood. It's interesting because it's potentially a common source of resistance both to um, the next world of work, but also to actually kind of getting to grips with this whole climate change thing. And, you know, people who have like a real and justified sense of economic security, those fears are justified. Um, to change everything, we need everyone. Not everyone is a collectivist. Some of us are diehard individualists. So, uh, you know, we're in this moment where we both need to, like, come up with a you know, way of fixing climate change that brings everyone with us, that does not leave the people who have been left on the scrap heap over the last couple of decades behind, while also dealing with the opposition from people who don't think that, you know, climate change is real if the answer is a collective solution. Jan Owen responding. Um, You know,
0: part of this is our ability to lift above uh, our own individual needs, requirements, that conversation about the individual... And the thing that I've always believed is missing in Australia and the thing I still don't think we have is nobody and no leader has been game enough to say, you know, what could it look like? What are the scenarios? What are the stories we want to tell ourselves about what the future could be?
1: A lot of the problem, I think, with the whole transition to a new economy has been very much one of people being scared of giving up what we've seen as, say, 40 years of continuous growth since World War II. A lot of people have got a lot invested in that model continuing. But essentially, that's a 20th century model that has worked uh, very well for us in many respects and for many other parts of the world, which is now gone. That model cannot continue any longer because of the implications of using fossil fuels, the fact that we are now hitting a whole lot of other limits around the world on things like oil. We're getting to the peak of coal availability fairly soon, not quite yet. And the same with gas and so on. Now, there is no question that we have to make this transition. Otherwise, we are not gonna have an economy that survives. I mean, we're gonna see real prospect of collapse occurring. Uh, It's already happening in some parts of the world but we have a choice as to whether we're actually gonna go in that direction or not. The difficulty in this country is we have never yet had an honest discussion about what all these things really mean. The um, energy discussion has been put to one side for years because the incumbency, if I can call it that, politically and corporately, under a neoclassical economist view of the world, cannot accept that if you don't keep keep pushing the price up, you will not get more supply of whatever it is becoming available, whether it's oil or gas or or coal and so on. We are now in a world where we have finite geological limits to that continuing. And that completely changes the economic system we've actually got to work under. Now, the transition to get away from um, the climate and energy dilemma, as it were... Uh, essentially is one that is probably the biggest investment opportunity the world has ever seen. We've never had to do this uh, before. Uh, We are in the middle of it. As Jan said, it's really been happening now since, well, 2000, um, in in a substantial sense, but quite a bit before that. We really have to start a conversation with everybody involved in it, which is honestly articulating what the science is telling us, both in the energy and climate and things like water and food security and so on, and start to nut out the best way to actually go about all of this because one of the biggest problems is the urgency with which you have to move. If you think you've got plenty of time, we can continue to emitting fossil fuel for quite a few more years... And this magic figure of two degrees C, we have to stay under, well, not a problem. We, you know, we've probably got 20 years and we won't exceed it. Um, and you've got plenty of oil availability and, and so on. Then you take one view to the transition, which is perhaps a more incremental level of change. If you take an honest look at the science, we actually have no carbon we can afford to continue burning today, if we were honest. Now that's not going to happen, this famous carbon budget. We don't have any more any more at all. And that's not, not just me saying, uh, talking, it's the IPCC discussing it. Um, we shouldn't be burning any more as of now, but we won't, we'll keep on doing it. Uh, we also are now in this real transition in the oil world and we have a financial system that is now extremely unstable because of the way that they've made bad investments in a lot of these things so far. Now, the opportunities there for young people are enormous, for everybody actually, but we have to change the the dialogue in this country away from assumptions that the 20th century model can keep going, and yeah, there may be a problem down the track, but we don't have to worry about it just yet. Now, if you listen to the political dialogue and the corporate dialogue, you don't hear a single word of this. It is all about how do we reboot the growth system that has been, as I think Miriam said, stagnating for quite a few years now. And you know we have to do it essentially by all the old things we were doing before. We don't. We have to have a completely new set of things. And that's the debate we really have to open up. It's not gonna come from the politicians. It's gonna have to come from the community.
3: Thanks, Amy, go ahead, um,
4: So. Just to kind of throw a bit of a bright note in. Um, I was doing some research for a talk at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas that I did um, late last year called Why Australia Should Welcome the End of the Mining Boom. Um, and uh, given that I have dual citizenship, I was very surprised that my Australian citizenship wasn't revoked at the end of that talk, but um, they let me back in. Um, one of the things that I found in the process of um, researching uh, what a big resources boom does to the economy is that compared um, to say a big agricultural boom, a big resources boom is much more likely to result in really high inequality which makes sense, right? Because it's a very capital intensive industry so you need to be one of those people who can walk into a bank and say, hey, give me an enormous multi-billion dollar loan um, in order to actually get into that game Um, and so it tends to concentrate a lot of wealth in few hands if you have an agricultural boom, uh, in a Australia, we've got some very big mega mega farms, but for your average kind of small-scale farmer, that wealth gets spread around a lot more. So one of the interesting things when thinking about growth for who, growth of what, if we switch from this very extractivist, not real growth, but like kind of um, liquidation model of growth, uh, I, I think it was... Um, uh, maybe Paul Hawkins, uh, someone of the people from the Rocky Mountains Institute who said that really shouldn't be called capitalism because we're depleting our capital, right? So if you switch from that kind of model to something which is much more restorative, um, one of the great things is that that tends to involve a hell of a lot more jobs, right? So we can, um, massively increase the efficiency of our building stock. You know, Australia, I've just come back from a, you know, a year and a half living in Berlin, um, and spending a lot of time in Zurich. It was, you know, it was fantastic. Come back to Australia, start looking for a house in Sydney. Um, it is unbelievably hard to get a house that actually has decent insulation, that is not freezing in winter, um, you know, that is not essentially built like a leaky tent um, you know you can't find one that doesn't have rising damp there's a whole bunch of things we fix a whole bunch of those things about our housing stock we will use less energy that's lower consumption it will mean more jobs spread around um, in the areas where they are most needed um, there are a whole lot of potential really good news stories to this shift from the kind of big capital extractivist model of capitalism and something that is actually about taking on a, you know a joint project that involves both government and the private sector and community groups and community energy, like just doing that job of transforming a whole physical system, it's going to be like a lot nicer to live in. You know, we're going to be stuck in traffic less. The air will be cleaner. The houses will be more comfortable. What is not to like?
0: Um, Ilan Ivory from Melbourne Uni. I have a question to the panel about if you have any particular views about possible changes in the economic models and the assumptions that they use about what we consider to be value, what are costs, what are benefits, what are assets. I'm aware that David Suzuki had mentioned, for example, the f- problem that a tree is only considered to be a value when it's cut. Good
4: question. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous that um, we currently in our accounting system have an absolute blind spot around ecosystem services, for example. You know, we, we don't really account for all of the free services that bees buzz around providing for farmers. Um, and that is one of the reasons, in fact, I think, that within this really tunnel-visioned economic system, we are able to, you know, power power straight on through and say, OK, well, you know, I'm sorry, but we can't have compliance with, you know, your environmental regulation on pesticides because, you know, that would hurt the economy, while meanwhile it is killing bees, um, which if we did not have them buzzing around fertilising plants, that would hurt the economy. So there is definitely something broken around how we account for value, and I am a really strong advocate for widening the economic lens as much as possible to take into account other things that are of value. The limit to that is that we can't only look at the world through an economic lens. So there's a project within uh, the economic world to do good economics by actually making it the economics of scarce resources, all of them, Um at the moment, actually, time and uh, time and natural resources are far scarcer than money is. Credit is abundant, um, so you know, let's let's kind of tweak that around. But also, let's remember that ecosystem scientists, psychologists, sociologists have just as much to tell us about the value um, and how to account for the value of the world that we see.
1: Yeah, look, I <coughs> I think. Um the, the big problem of things like climate change, for example, is the question, And as Miriam's indicated, of externalities, the fact that we don't account for the implications, not just of um, climate change itself, uh, natural disasters and so on, but the health implications particularly, which are now coming into into focus. The other problem is that um, we have a completely disconnected system. I mean, you know, we, we currently, globally subsidise the fossil fuel industry in hard-nosed subsidies, something like $550 billion a year around the world, compared with a fifth of that that has been going to the renewable industries to get them off the ground. Now, when you listen to the press, what do you hear? Continual bleating from politicians about the terrible subsidies that go to the renewable energy industry. Nobody talks about the subsidies for fossil fuels and that 550 million is a vast underestimate because what we are not doing is allocating the true cost of climate change in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. If you added that in, which the the, um, the IMF did a, a study last year on, then the figure goes up to about 5.5 trillion dollars annually. Now, in Paris in December, everybody got terribly excited and there was enormous rhetoric about the fact that this is now a very serious problem, we all have to address it. Now how can you possibly address this problem when you are putting that sort of money into maintaining the status quo? It's complete nonsense. So you know, from my point of view, I mean, Paris was a diplomatic success or victory or whatever you know, the French called it at the time. In a practical sense, it's an absolute disaster because nobody has really focused on what the change really has to be. And it's getting, you know, it's changing this economic model, it's broadening it, and bringing in the sort of things Miriam talked about as essential in the way we move forward into the new economic era of the 21st century. Oh, hi, my name's Phil, I'm from Geelong. Do you think there is a role, a key role, for local government in making this transition
0: I saw a fantastic presentation actually which really opened my eyes um, by a senior um, CEO of a council in the Northern Territory actually but he talked about how Australian local government has something like $320 billion worth of assets actually under management in the sense that they manage that value for state and federal governments. And he was saying it in order to say to local governments, wake up, look what we actually... We may not own it, but we actually manage it, we run it, we resource it. We actually, have to um, genuinely up the upkeep and maintenance and also make new decisions. And it was very empowering to see these CEOs from across all these local councils in Australia going, what? yes, actually, when you aggregate that, that is enormous. So there is huge power in local government alone because of that asset that, that they manage. Um, and the ability, therefore, to do things like you're talking about um, is very real um, I would love to see councils move really fast around governance, though. So councils in this stra- in Australia are mostly still on a very, very quite ancient governance model. Um, it is very unrepresentative. It is not diverse, um, and it needs. Uh, I think that councils could go harder and faster with a very diverse new model around governance and um, democratic processes of crowd funding, sourcing, ideas, thinking, and representation.
3: Thanks, Jim.
1: Yeah, look, I I think it's extremely important to get these sort of initiatives moving at every level. I mean, the transition town work um, has been really quite instrumental in, in changing a lot of thinking in many parts of the world. And you can say, well, look, this is all small stuff, but when you aggregate it, it really does make a big change, and the most important thing is the, the cultural change, I think, that it engenders in the discussion that's going on around the community. Now, the problem we've got is that that's got to be translated higher up the tree. I mean, at the moment, the political system, the corporate system, is locked into an ideological uh, gridlock, if you like, where nobody is able to come out and speak honestly about the sort of things that actually have to change. And until the community actually give them the legitimacy to do it, I don't think we're going to see that alter. Um, The investment community is starting to cotton on to the fact that unless they start to move on these things, then they are in big trouble because they're, um, amongst other things, their personal liability as directors of super funds and things like this, Uh, gets called into question if they don't honestly face up to the risks that um, we now confront by not addressing these types of issues. But, uh, you know, that's one major point of leverage. But the other one has got to be getting this discussion up. So, I mean, I would be urging everybody, you know, in communities and this room and so on to get letters in to their local members to keep on badgering them about the fact that All what you hear on the ABC and any other radio program talking about politics is basically completely irrelevant to the real issues we now face.
3: Um, I often wondered about the role of family in uh, economic growth because we've seen you talk about being activists. A lot of young people, they're willing to challenge the status quo and really get out there and seek change. But once they get a house family, dog, cats, kids, that that all goes out the window and we go to work and become, we become afraid to challenge that status quo so I just was wondering what do we need to change within ourselves before we can actually change everything else?
4: I think that was such a good question. I mean, I I feel like surely nothing could focus the mind more on how to be a good ancestor than having a child. You know, that's something that gives you a whole extra lifespan to think through, you know. Suddenly you were a longer-lived human on the planet in a way you can talk about the impact of just being sleep deprived you know like the sheer running around the the sorry the time deprived the sheer running around involved in having a kid and then paying the mortgage and looking after the cat feed the dog one of the things that i think is really Interesting that can potentially tie, you know, a whole bunch of the things together that we need to happen through this period of transition is the idea of a universal basic income or guaranteed minimum income. You know, something that we can actually push for that is an enhancement to our lives because so often we're talking about, you know, the idea, you know, people find it very hard to imagine and fight for something that involves having less. But if we can talk about having more time, um, having more more freedom to choose the kind of work that we do in our lives—that's something I think a lot of people would be really excited about fighting for. Um, and interestingly, in a kind of note of variation from the sort of ideological gridlock that we were talking about before, the Institute of Public Affairs I just heard have just come out in support of a guaranteed minimum income. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Look, you—you you touched on one of the absolutely fundamental problems of this this whole debate. Uh, I mean I, I'm, I'm sort of tired a little bit with a, an extremist brush on climate change and that I've had a view for a long time that the problem was far, more, far worse and moving far more quickly than we've been told um, I'd like to think that wasn't true but unfortunately it looks as if it is uh, I was reasonably on the ball for years now um, there's been a long debate about the fact that look you really can't afford to scare the horses you can't you know, make things too bleak and be too honest about all of this stuff because, you know, people get very worried and and that's just not good. I mean, we've got to have a lot of what a colleague of mine calls bright-siding. You know, we have answers. We know the solutions. It's no problem. We'll get there. The trouble with that is that what it's done, and this is not just, I might add, the, the political and, you know, sort of corporate incumbency. This is NGOs too, who frankly should know better. These are the people who are trying to change it. Not all of them, but a lot of them. The problem with that is it allows the system to have the, maintain the narrative that this is not really a big change, it's an incremental thing that okay, we've got a bit of time, we can fix it in due course. We don't have that. And until we start to get really honest about what we now do have to do, and we're still not seeing it in, in international terms in Paris and so on, um, we are never gonna solve this problem. So when you come back to the question of family, I think what the Pope did in uh, last year in terms of the encyclical was extremely important because the moral and ethical dimensions of climate change have been something that have been politically unacceptable to talk about for years now. The moment you raise it, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's do good, feel good stuff. It's not really the hard-nosed stuff of you know, how we run an emissions trading system and what level of emission reduction we need and, and all the rest of it. Those are the sorts of things that families nearly really need to get their mind around. There is a major moral and ethical context to this, which is something we have never ever seen before. I mean, this is a genuinely existential issue. If we don't get this right, families, children, grandchildren have an enormous problem. And we shouldn't hold back from being honestly discussing. that. Now you need to do it in the context of having the solutions as well. But that's where the conversation should be going because if you don't start with an honest assessment of the problem, you never end up with the right solutions. We have got those solutions. We have got enormous upside potential in in job creation, as Miriam says, much more so than in the traditional system. And I think more and more people around the country, I feel, are, are understanding that and want to have that discussion. So the more we can encourage that to open up constructively, the better.
2: And that brings us to the end of the show tonight. That was uh, a presentation courtesy of the Sustainable Living Festival, uh, a presentation brought to the SLF by the organisation Understand Scope, of which you heard Anthony James, the Executive Director, being the MC for the three speakers, Ian Dunlop, Miriam Lyons and Jan Owen. I'd like to leave you with a little bit of homework to go onto Ms Internet and type in a bright yellow suitcase is saving mums and babies around the world. That'll bring up a link to a good news story about uh, one of the benefits of renewable energies over and above the old fossil fuel type. But uh, next up is Save Albert Park. Uh, Before we go to them, I'd like to thank the gang. You know who you are, but for the benefit of those who don't, thank you to Vivian, Miwa, Glenn, Teddy for fabulous promos and the the, silent partner, Jodie, who's on the email and uh, in their sort of the promotions of the BZE organisation. Don't forget to have a look at our website bze.org and also to listen to our sister show with the two boys on it on a Friday morning at 8.30. I think two boys and one girl now, my, my apologies. Okay, see you next week, same time. Have a good week and get out there and be active.